So Gal, can you explain to the audience what is emotion regulation? Okay. Um, so emotion regulation is actually quite complicated to define and we'll, we'll, we'll actually, um, I, I'm sure we'll visit it during this conversation. But very briefly and in short, um, if you have your emotions and how your emotions are naturally evolving and lead to your emotional response, then emotion regulation would be anything you do uh, that changes this natural course of the emotion. Okay, so you can do certain things that would change maybe the intensity of that emotion, maybe the duration of that emotion, maybe even change it from one emotion to the other emotion. Uh, maybe you'll try to increase the intensity, decrease the intensity, and so forth. But any change that we try to induce on, nat on a naturally occurring emotion is what we would call emotion regulation. Okay. And in this field, uh, you and I uh, spoke privately about this. And you said that there are a few challenges uh, in this field in terms of uh, the research that's being done. Could you tell us what those challenges are? Sure. Um, so I, I believe we'll talk today about three such challenges. I want to first begin by saying that emotion regulation, uh, I'm biased, of course, but emotion regulation is a great field with major advancements. Um, academic scholars um, study it extensively. Um, citations rise exponentially um, outside the academia. Uh, there are podcasts, there are, there, are, there are regular columns in Psychology Today speaking about emotion regulation. So everybody, it's, it's a good time to study emotion regulation. But I guess that being the little pessimistic that I am, uh, as an individual maybe, um, what I like to do uh, usually when I give these kinds of talks is talk about some um, current challenges that we have in this field. And also not only just state the challenges, but also how we could address them. Um, so I believe we'll talk about three such challenges today. One would be um, whenever we see emotional problems, be it tantrums or, or, or outbursts, are they always the result of emotion dysregulation or not necessarily? So that would be one set of challenges. The other challenges um, are two. Um, one would be what I call the good and bad problem, which refers to the idea that there are various ways to control our emotions. But we have this idea that certain types of regulatory efforts or ways to change our emotions are all good and other types are all bad. Um, and, and I think that this is, uh, this is quite, quite a challenge that we need to overcome. Um, and in short, we'll just say that different strategies have costs and benefits and we want to understand them and, and so forth. And the third and last challenge is that when we think about emotion regulation, we usually refer to what people do here and now, meaning how well are they, so how well am I regulating my emotions right now when there's a camera in front of me, right? right. Um, but I will try to say that emotion regulation is a much broader phenomenon that includes certain stages that precede and follow the actual execution or the actual effort to regulate my emotions as we speak. Okay, so to start with that first point that you made, the fact that 
when we see, for instance, someone having a temper tantrum, we might think, oh, this, this child isn't able to regulate their emotions. But what you're saying is sometimes the issue lies in controlling the emotions and changing them. But sometimes some people just have very big feelings, right? There's individual differences in terms of our emotionality and our emotional reactivity. So could you say more about that? Exactly. So I think, you, I mean, you really uh, nailed it in, in how you described the problem there. Uh, but yeah, the problem starts with the fact that, yes, we, we have, a lot of us have some emotional problems, be it our mood problems, we're too sad, be it we're too anxious, be it our kids, right? Um, there is this uh, new disorder. It's called uh, disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. And there, um, the symptoms that, that kids usually show are having those outbursts or tantrums or having irritability. Uh, all of these are symptoms of emotionality. However, when we try to understand why is it that this child is having those outbursts, we usually think that it's they must be due to the fact that they have difficulties in controlling their emotions, right? Even if you think about the name, the definition of that disorder, it's called right. disruptive mood dysregulation. Um, so uh, the, the problem there is that this is a, a case of reverse inference. We see emotional problems, we see tantrums, and these are really something that uh, are hard for the child, hard for the parent, um, but then we, we try to refer and try to think that, oh, if we see that this child has outbursts, then he must have a problem with controlling his emotions or her emotions. Um, and I think that that's uh, not necessarily so. And the reason why I think it's not necessarily so is that in science, although there are some arguments, there are a lot of um, accounts that try to separate between two uh, major processes. One being the emotion generation process, which means how quickly, how intense do I create, for example, my anger or my, my, yeah, my, my anger reactions, right? Um, and we think that this system is somewhat independent from another system, which is how we control our emotions. So just to make it maybe more clear, um, if you have two kids, okay, and they might show the same outbursts, okay, the same output. It could be that one child has stronger anger responses, right? Um, and it's part of the system that generates their emotions, right? So if I have a stronger anger response, that could lead me to outbursts, okay? I get angry more easily and it goes up very quickly, and the, the, the amplitude of my anger is very high, and my anger subsides very, very slowly, okay? All of this could be parts of this system that is generating the emotion. So that's one type of problem that could lead to, those, uh, to this disorder even. Another type of problem might be that the, the two kids might have um, the same anger response, but really um, one child is better than the other in regulating or controlling that anger. That's what we usually think when we see that. 
Um, so all I'm saying is that here, it's very important to distinguish between emotion generation and emotion regulation. Um, right. I think, I think, you know, as you mentioned before, this mood dysregulation disorder, I think there's this assumption that we all need to have our emotions regulated at all times. And if they're dysregulated, there's, there's a disorder here. Now, I think what's important about what you're saying is we need to recognize that the solution to an emotional problem can be very different because, you know, some children might really be very emotionally reactive and helping them go through that emotion, emotional episode and learning how to regulate those very big feelings, that's, that's on one end. And some children don't have that self-control, right? Or their, their emotion regulation really is out of whack. They're not able to detect their emotions and understand what emotion regulation strategies they need to implement, right? So there's different solutions for each one of these cases. So I think it's very important to look at this whole map of emotion and emotion regulation and see the nuances, as you said. Yeah, I, I completely agree. Yeah. And possibly we have um, three types here, right? We have that, that could be the, 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 the cause of the same problem. Okay. So for those, again, for this tendency to have tantrum outbursts, it could be the result of a system that is generating anger and irritability at a higher, to a higher extent. It could be problems with regulating or controlling that anger. And as we know, it could be uh, that, that some people have problems in both systems. So it could be that not only do I have a stronger anger response, but also I have problems with regulating this anger response. Um, so there could be right. three types. Right, right. And you're right. It's, it, it is very important to try to understand where this problem is originating from. Again, not it's not that we know everything right now. As, as I've said, um, the category in the DSM, in the uh, psychiatric Bible, uh, um, <laughs> is still agnostic to the fact that certain problems could originate from emotion generation or emotion regulation or both. Um, but it is true that possibly if we make this distinction better, uh, we could better help uh, maybe those kids. And for those who have emotion regulation problems, it is important to improve their emotion regulation skills. Um, I'm not sure for that disorder, but sometimes when there's a heightened emotion generation response, sometimes you need to consider also certain medications that, that might work better for down-regulating certain emotion generation response and so forth. Right, right. Now, the second point that we mentioned, this beyond good and bad model of emotion regulation strategies, before we get into all of that, we're using this word emotion regulation strategies. Just to catch everyone up, what are these strategies? Could you give us a few examples so we understand? And also, what are these strategies today that are kind of cataloged as good and which ones are cataloged as bad? And then we'll disprove that, of course. Yeah, so great. So first of all, um, there are really various ways to regulate our emotions. 
and we we must be also um, modest uh, in, in in clearly declaring that that not all types of regulatory efforts are being studied or even heavily studied. Um, we can do in real life. We do multiple things uh, from maybe cognitive strategies where we try to think about things differently, and I'll talk about that maybe uh, a lot of the time. But there are also behavioral ways to regulate our emotions. Um, we could go for a run, a swim, listen to music, uh, talk to a friend, um, eat uh, when we when we when, when we're sad or or anxious. Um, so there are various ways. Um, one useful way that we found to maybe categorize different emotion regulation strategies is on a continuum that runs from disengagement to engagement. And the idea there, again, to say that in, in very clear words is that regulatory, regulatory efforts, um, you can maybe divide them into two types, although it's a continuum. Um, one type is where there's effort not to process the emotion, okay? And maybe one such example could be attentional distraction. So for example, again, if I'm anxious from this interview uh, and I want to not process that thing that causes worry or anxiety, I could try to think about something else. I'm, I could think about what I wanna say, I could focus on certain places on, on the screen and so forth. Um, but note that these efforts, in, in these efforts, we're trying not to process the emotional event that's causing the emotion, okay? From there, there are, there's a second type that's it's called more of an engagement strategies. And in engagement strategies, we're still trying to modify our emotions. This is still emotion regulation. But here, we are processing uh, the, the emotional event. So going back to our example, if I'm, again, anxious during this conversation, it's not that I'm not attentive to the fact that I'm anxious, or maybe that uh, just looking at your face makes me anxious because I don't know if you're critical and I don't know if, uh, if, my, if what I say makes sense. Um, but now, so I'm attending to that fact, but I'll, I can try to change how I think about it and change maybe the meaning of that. So one such strategy that we also extensively study is called cognitive reappraisal, um, right. part of maybe modern CBT, um, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. Um, but there, note that I am attending, I am processing that maybe your face is, um, I, 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 I can view it as critical, you're not interested and so forth, but I can change the way I think. I could say, oh, it's just this uh, Riverside app that's uh, really uh, causing all this. And, <laughs> and, and maybe she is curious. Maybe she does want to, uh, maybe she's a little tired if I spot something, right? It's not something that's related to me, for example. So there right. I am processing, I am engaging, but I'm still trying to change my emotions or here, reduce my anxiety. Right, right. So this idea that we have at our disposal all sorts of strategies to regulate our own emotions and modify them, whether we're talking about positive emotions that we want to boost or whether we're talking about negative emotions that we want to reduce, 
we have all sorts of strategies. And I like how you organize this on this continuum of disengagement to engagement, right? Sometimes, and we'll get into this, right? There are certain contexts where it's more appropriate and more helpful for us to disengage in the moment, right? Especially when we're talking about very high intensity emotions. And in some regards, it's better to engage and really change how we're framing the situation. If we're, um, we're, we all have a negativity bias, of course, right? So if we're picking up on certain cues and we might think that we're being rejected, we could always reframe the situation. And as you said, maybe that person is just having a bad day. So Mm -hmm. as we said, also, there are costs for each one of these. Yes. And I want to read you a quote and hear what you think, because even though disengagement sometimes is appropriate in certain situations, it's not always the best idea. And I have a quote here by Freud that I'll throw at you and tell me what you think. Unexpressed emotions will never die. They are buried alive and will come forth later in uglier ways. <laughs> yeah, so very nice. So very nice. Very quote. Freud. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that uh, I think that it it talks a little bit about the tension we previously talked about, which is that right. this idea between whether we allow certain emotions to be generated, and if so, how do we try to control them, and so forth. Um, and the Freudian idea is that yeah, certain emotions that you try to really suppress or not to engage with or not to process or at least not to process consciously. Uh, That's another uh, huge uh, thing uh, right, in, right. in these we kinds of studies. We won't get into that today. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> there are ways to study also unconscious uh, emotion regulation too, which is in the really? lab. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. But we won't. So, maybe so we won't. May- Maybe no. So if there are, if there are, I would love to hear if we yeah. can actually prove Freud for a, for a change. <laughs> prove Freud or prove Freud wrong, right? The, the whole idea is that you want to test Freud. This is what right, we right. and any other uh, theorist, uh, you want to test them. You, I don't want you don't want to prove or disprove. Uh, but you want to, yeah. Uh, but but again, going back. Uh, so I think there's there's one thing we didn't say, but but it's this idea, and maybe it's. Uh, it's something you can see in, in, in Freud's uh, saying, but but one part of it is that, and you asked me about this before, uh, and I apologize, I didn't answer that section of your, <laughs> of your question, um, but which strategies are considered good and which strategies are considered bad? Right, right, right. And, and it's interesting that among individuals and also among therapists and also among some scholars, the division is uh, used to be quite clear, which was that disengagement type of strategies where you try not to process emotional information are considered bad, right? Just bad, inherently bad. They, are, they, they could be the reason why we develop certain psychopathologies, according to some theorists, okay? Right. So not only are they not good, Maybe they're the reason. So if people use those bad strategies, they're more likely to develop psychopathologies that last longer and that are more severe, for example. Okay? Um, These are the disengagement strategies. This was the view. Um, Right. This idea that we need to be processing our emotions at all times. All the time. Feeling everything. 
right? So heaven forbid we don't repress an emotion. Right, right, exactly. (laughs) And then, yes, so the counterpart of that is, yes, so who are good guys or, or are good fellows here? These are the engagement strategies. Those, so all the efforts where you regulate your emotions, but you're in touch with your feelings and you're processing your feelings and you understand your feelings and, and then try to change them or modify them, these are the good strategies. So the, 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 this wrong conclusion is that we should try to maximally use engagement strategies and perhaps never use disengagement strategies. And this is, although this is, now there's a newer view, this is not, this is not only our lab, what what's our lab is doing, but rather there are quite a few scholars that talk about this idea of flexibility. It's right. This idea uh, that there, cert, each strategy has a cost-benefit profile. There are good things about it. There are bad things about it. And our lab tries to focus on the fact that if you understand how different strategies work, you can clearly predict um, when certain strategies are good, when certain strategies are bad, why and for whom. And our the major idea there is that if you look at this cost-benefit profile, then you could predict. And, and there from there, um, yeah, we could go in and, and try to understand what are the costs and benefits of disengagement strategies, of engagement strategies. And therefore, when do we need to use disengagement strategies and when do we need to use engagement strategies uh, and so, achieve that flexibility? Exactly. First of all, I love this phrase, you know, this term, emotion regulation flexibility, of being flexible with how we regulate our emotions, depending on the context, depending on the emotion, and what will serve us in the best way. So if we take disengagement strategies, which have gotten a bad rap, right? They've gotten this label of being very maladaptive. But you've found in your research that there are situations in which disengagement is the appropriate strategy. So what are those situations? Perfect. So first of all, yes, we we have considerable evidence that we found in our lab that was, I think, um, quite convincing. But again, I must say, this is not only things that were found in our lab. Um, Other labs have, and that's actually the best thing that could happen, right? That that other people could replicate those findings and 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 show um, uh, that disengagement is not all bad. Uh, so just to name a few, um, so uh, James Gross and 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 George Bonanno um, and Amelia Aldo and others um, have um, really shaped this idea, evolving idea of emotion regulation flexibility. Um, but in short, we like to look at three underlying. Uh, operations that are part of disengagement and engagement strategies. Uh, one factor, one central factor is you you hinted at this um, is the is the emotional intensity of the event. So right. certain events could be overwhelmingly high, right? So let's say I'm I could have a very strong urge um, or a very strong. Uh, um, Anxiety attack, or 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 a very strong urge, uh, maybe even to um, to co- to 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 hurt myself, self self harm. Um, 
And these things could be either more intense or more mild. So our emotions could run very high or not so much in certain in different situations. And you're right that uh, we have consistently shown that at least again in the short term, disengagement strategies um, like distraction, like trying to think about something else, uh, um, at least in the short run, um, could downregulate the intense emotions much better than engagement strategies. Um, we have shown it um, with uh, people's self-report. So people report feeling less intense after using disengagement relative to engagement when they're encountering high-intensity emotional events. But this was uh, above and beyond emotional experience. We have shown it with um, uh, peripheral physiology, um, so stress response could be uh, better downregulated with this, at least in the short run, with disengagement relative to engagement strategies. We've shown it with ERPs, with um, event-related potentials like um, uh, neural brain measures. And there, um, there are also studies showing that, for example, uh, the amygdala in MRI studies could be more strongly uh, modulated. Uh, with disengagement strategies relative to engagement strategies. So one factor is the emotional intensity. And there, this early disengagement, where we try not to process emotional information and replace it with something else, could be something that better helps um, um, not, I mean, the emotion doesn't develop much force uh, using those disengagement strategies. And that could be uh, something that's, at least in the short run, works better with high intensity. Um, and part of the problem with engagement strategies is that if I want to reappraise something, I have to first appraise it. So if I want to reappraise the fact that uh, maybe you're not critical, um, right, um, I have to first appraise it. And when this is intense, it's really hard then to modify that and, and by, by keeping it in my mind. Um, so... That's one of the reasons why disengagement might work better um, than engagement for high-intensity situations. The other two factors are cognitive resources. So there are times when we have a lot ample available resources to cope with our emotions, and there are other times where we are where we feel exhausted. Uh, either we're tired, it's hard for us to concentrate, um, we're overwhelmed, and, but cognitively here. And again, given that disengagement strategies operate very early, um, they require less resources. And therefore, that's another advantage of disengagement strategies is that they require less resources in order to operate relative to engagement uh, strategies. Right. So they are you, easier to induce. Yeah. To implement. Could you give us an example of this? Just a real life example. So everyone... Uh, we can bring resource, it down from the abstract a little bit more down of the of when a disengagement is going to be more helpful. Okay, okay. So yes. So I'll just uh, there is this third factor. I'll just finish it and then oh, absolutely. Uh, and then we we could, I can summarize how we view this. So the the third factor is your goals. Right, and goals right. could be sometimes you want to feel better really quickly right now. And that's that could be actually good for you sometimes, and I'll say when, okay? But at other times, 
um, you want to achieve this long-term regulation. So just to give two examples on this goal thing, right? Yes. Again, if we go back to sometimes when suicidal tendencies or self-harm tendencies are really go up, there it is helpful to set the short-term goal. All I want to do now is feel better as quickly as possible, right? And then once I feel better, I can then see what I what I want to do next, okay? But there are certain times where just wanting to feel better at the moment could be the right thing, okay? However, there are other many other way, many other situations where you want to feel better in the long term. So let's take again, sorry, I apologize, you're not critical at all, but I'm just using it <laughs> as an example. Um, but if we take this example, and let's say that part of my work is to to speak, right, in front of students and in front of like colleagues like you. Um, and this is something I do regularly. I may want to be able to regulate my emotions in a way that in future encounters, I'll feel better and not as anxious as, right, as trying to always just feel better right now. Right, okay? right. Okay, so there are situations, many situations, where the long-term goal of feeling better in the long run for certain, certain emotional episodes that tend to reoccur, um, that's the important goal. Um, and for those uh, here, for the short-term goals, Disengagement strategies could work better, but the major cost of disengagement, of distracting yourself, is by the fact, because I'm not processing anything that's related to situation, why would it change the next time I encounter it, right? Right, and this goes back to Freud's quote before, right? Exactly, exactly. So it could be related to that long-term benefit. So now if you want to summarize that, we could think that there are these three factors, right? So we have our emotional intensity. Maybe it's high or low. We have our resources. Maybe they're high or low. And we have our goals. Sometimes we want to feel better right now. Sometimes we want to achieve this long-term feeling better in next time I encounter a certain emotional episode. And the idea there is that disengagement will prove good strategy when emotions are high, when resources are low, and when your goals are immediate. So again, going right. back to situations real life, uh, again, I have this very strong suicidal tendency or, or suicidal thought or intent that's really high right now. I feel really maxed out. I, I'm, I have m- m- uh, very little resources to deal with it right now. And I, and I should set a short-term goal because suicidal thoughts tend to fluctuate, okay? Right. So it is very important that I, I'll care about trying to feel better really right now in the short term. In these situations, it's it might be very adaptive to use disengagement strategies, like distraction, like something else where I try not to process the emotional information in order for me to feel better right now with minimal resources. Right. However, um, Engagement is really, really important in many other in many other situations. Usually, when the intensity is less high, when I have more resources, okay, and certainly when I have this long-term goal. So again, going back, if right now I'm not 
overwhelmed by anxiety uh, speaking to you, and I have fairly enough resources. And again, I have a, I have a long-term goal. I, I, I regularly speak to people about what I do. For these situations, it's clear that engagement strategies like reappraisal, where I process that and try to change the meaning, are things that um, might be good for me, especially in the long term. Right, right. I think that it's very important to, you know, see this whole picture and understand that in certain situations when emotional intensity is high and we're feeling very negative emotions, whether we're depressed, whether we're suicidal, wh whether we're very afraid, and it's very important to perform now in the moment in whatever situation we're in, sometimes it's not helpful to dwell on things, right? right. We don't want to become an emotional mess. Of course, there's a time and a place for that because we don't want these emotions to keep coming up. And Perfect. as you said, you know, if you're uh, doing public speaking, maybe the first couple of times, it's better to just disengage. But at a certain point, you need to master this, you need to master that emotion, that fear that comes up. So there is this balance. And it's very important to understand when, when a certain strategy is appropriate. So I love this you know, view of not, you know, looking at all of these emotional strategies as either good and bad, but really looking at the context. And I have a quote for us here in terms sure. of, in terms of, you know, emotions that have often been uh, categorized as negative. So Aristotle has a quote, anybody can become angry. That is easy, but to be angry with the right person and to the right degree and at the right time, and for the right purpose, and in the right way, hmm. that is not within everybody's power and is wow. not easy. So wow. what do you think about that? <laughs> so I, I really love the second part of that uh, quote that does talk about emotion regulation. Uh, and I think maybe to some extent talks about also this idea of emotion regulation flexibility, or at least that would be our solution so that very hard problem that Aristotle is talking about, which is, oh, what should I do and for whom and when and exactly how and so forth. Right. Uh, so I think that maybe our modest answer to that, uh, you know, philosophical uh, thought mm -hmm. is, is that, yes, let's try to make sense of certain strategies and try to understand how they work and how they operate. And then we can see their costs and benefits and, and we could then maybe help people. And we can talk about that because uh, we are doing this kind of work right now of trying to improve this flexibility um, in individuals, uh, post-traumatic individuals. Um, so so I, I really love that first, uh, I'm sorry, that second section okay, of that. You had a problem with the first part. So yeah, my, my, my main problem with the first part is that I don't think, and this is not just me, that it's really easy to become angry. So the idea here again is I think Aristotle may be referring to emotion generation that we've talked about during that right, first right. challenge. And there, I would have to say that while there, for some people, it is really easy to get angry and they get really angry, there are substantial individual differences in how anger is generated and to what extent anger is generated, even without this idea of regulation, right? 
This is what we talked about before, maybe about these kids with disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, right? So there I have to say that for some people, yes, it is very easy. For some other people, it is hard, right? Uh, and they, maybe they don't get angry enough, right? But it's clear that for these individuals that don't get angry enough, anger regulation is not a problem. And it's not necessarily because they're such great regulators. It's mainly because anger is not produced in the intensity and duration that is produced in other individuals. Right, right. I think that, you know, this quote encompasses a lot here of, first of all, certain emotions that we think are negative and we think that we don't need at all, right? It's it's good to never be angry and we always need to be happy and nice. So as you said, as you said, some people don't find it easy to become angry in the first place. And some, in some situations, right, healthy anger is the defense of our own boundaries. Some people don't know how to put those boundaries in place and True. don't know how to then become angry and actually, you know, hold their own. And I think, you know, obviously not to generalize, but I think women oftentimes were taught that anger is inappropriate. And obviously for women, the costs of becoming angry with the wrong person are higher. So I think instinctually we learn to repress our anger. Not all women, <laughs> you know, uh, we have this. Good. We have a term in Hebrew called uh, um, Mediterranean temperament, right? So mm. some people find it much easier to become <laughs> to become angry. But with that said, there's always a time and a place. There's the right amount. And I think that mm-hmm. also, as we said, the extreme end of not being able to be angry at all, but being too angry and completely losing control where it doesn't serve us anymore. We're not actually protecting our boundaries, but we're losing control. We will regret it later. We'll feel shame. And we we really didn't get our point across. So I think that there's a lot of nuance here in this whole world of emotions. And as we said, uh, you know, offline, sometimes the philosophers uh, like to look at emotions as either all good or all bad, right? We're we're a lot more nuanced these days, but back in the day, it was either pure reason and emotions are, you know, the passions and their vices and they're something that makes us less human, right? It makes us more animalistic. But today we understand that they're part of life and there's a lot of important information and use in these emotions. Yes, I I mean, yes, I completely agree with everything you just said. And and I think you're also uh, stating something that I haven't uh, said when I defined emotion regulation is the, and and it's, uh, we wanna be really clear that our emotions uh, are something that, that is very important for us. And clearly there are, Many times we're expressing, fully expressing our emotions are really good for us, right? It's just that there are other instances where emotions, as you say, may become too intense so that they cause this maybe psychological uh, distress. And maybe, and sometimes, as you also said, our emotions, when they go too high, they do not... um, uh, 
shape or they, or they they do not go accord with uh, with with other goals that we have right 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 that's when we need to control our emotions but it's not that we always want to control our emotions clearly not so i mean evolution has created this wonderful system right. um, that leads to adaptive behavior right you're right Absolutely. sometimes you need to protect yourself and be angry and and set boundaries right exactly and it's clear that other at other times it is important to become fearful or anxious um or sad absolutely yeah. and i think i think that you know puts things into context where we look at this these spectrum of emotions and understanding that even the negative emotions have a purpose, right? Well, They're adaptive in certain regards. I I heard um, you know, one definition of negative emotions as their use being um indicating to us that we are not moving towards our, our goal, right? Being sad or frustrated. We are obviously low dopamine at that state. And that often signals to us whatever you're doing isn't working, right? Try something else. Right. This relationship isn't working. This job isn't working. This specific strategy isn't working. So even in the negative emotions, there are uh, there is important information. But obviously, we want to have balance. We want to be able to experience joy and love and gratitude as well. And I think it's just important not to fall into a Pollyanna view of life. Right. Of We always need to be positive all the time. Of course. Of course not. Yeah. Yes. We also want to be sad when it, in certain situations, and angry, and and fearful or anxious. Yes. Um, Absolutely. Yes. So there. Mm-hmm. We we spoke about the third cha- challenge, right? This beyond the here and the now, right? We always, we often, in especially you know in the literature today, we speak about emotion regulation as something that's happening right now. I have an emotion and now I'm regulating it. And that's all we speak about. And you mentioned that emotion regulation is a much longer process. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us more about that? Yeah, um, sure. Um, So yes, you're right. There is this uh, here and now focus that we have in life, right? Especially in modern life and in our digital, the digital times that we live in, right? You must respond to my email in two minutes and you must uh, do everything (laughs) right now and here and now and, and, you know, yesterday's news. And um, so, yeah, I completely agree that there is this focus. But this focus, I think, again, is another challenge because I think it... um, it misses certain important elements that are part of our emotion regulation efforts. And there have been, again, great scholars, um, Tom Webb, again, James Gross, uh, others, um, and also work that done in our lab that tries to look at emotion regulation as a richer phenomenon. And the idea here is that there are maybe four stages uh, that that where emotion regulation might be important, okay? And you can treat them chronologically um, as they happen in time. Um, so when there is a certain emotional episode that starts creating our emotions, the first stage would be uh, identification, meaning 
I need to be able to identify that emotional episode. And it's not always the case that, that people identify when they get emotional, right? And when I do so, I need to decide, whether consciously or unconsciously, again, uh, whether it's good for me to regulate my emotions, okay? So identification refers to this idea that I need to identify my emotions and then decide whether in this situation it is beneficial to regulate my emotions, right? And as you've said in that quote and in other things and in, 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 in our prior um, conversation, um, sometimes it's not beneficial to regulate my emotions, right? It is, I need to express my anger. I need to express my fear and, and have these behavioral tendencies that could help me even survive, right? But even but not only survive, thrive in an interpersonal context. Um, so identification is the first stage. Identify the emotion and decide whether you need to regulate your emotions or not. Following the identification stage, there is a selection stage. So let's say that I have decided that I do need to regulate my emotions. The selection, the second selection stage is a stage in which I have to decide between certain strategies. And as we've discussed, I may need to be flexible and be and know which strategy do I need to choose right now? Maybe based on how high the emotion is, how my resources are doing and, and what is my goal as we've discussed before. So selection is a very important phase where there could be adaptive functioning and there could be maladaptive functioning. Then following selection, right? So if I identify that I need to regulate my emotions and I've selected a select certain strategy that I want to implement, now during implementation, which is the third stage, I need to execute that regulatory effort, okay? So now I want to endorse reappraisal and try to change how I think about things in order to feel less anxious. And the last stage is monitoring, which is also very, very important. So as I'm reappraising, I need to monitor how well I'm doing. And then maybe I can decide to switch to a different strategy, or maybe I need to decide that I have to stick with it because it's gonna work soon. Or, Maybe it's time for me to stop regulating my emotions right now and allow my feelings again. So this would be the fourth stage. So these are the four stages that I think overcome the here and now problem. And there could be, uh, we could define what adaptive functioning looks like based on this profile on these four stages. And what's maybe more important for me, maybe as a clinical psychologist, is we can identify certain problems that people might have in one or more of these stages and then right. try to help these people. Absolutely. So we have these four stages. We have selection. Identification being first. Oh, okay. Identification, selection, implementation, and then monitoring. Perfect. Right? And so... I, I love how you break this down because we can see that we could have a problem, so to speak, at each one of these stages. Sometimes the problem might be the individual doesn't even realize they need to regulate their emotions, exactly. right? 
they might not be aware of the, the emotion itself, but they might not be aware of the need to regulate. Exactly. And then we have selection, right? We have what strategy am I going to use? What is appropriate? What is going to help me in terms of my goals, you know, short-term and long-term? Then the implementation. Sometimes we might not implement those strategies the best uh, we would like, especially cognitive reappraisal, you know, reframing the situation. A lot of times something is very negative and holds a lot of weight for us it's going to be hard to change the way we see it. And even though that might be, you know, better for us in the long run, it can be very difficult. So that implementation phase can also be problematic. And then monitoring, you know, maybe maybe we're not even, you know, checking back. Is my emotion regulation working? Is, is the emotion, you know, have I been able to reduce that negative emotion that I wanted? Was I able to, you know, to to go through that entire process successfully? So could you give us a few examples, for instance, yes. of, of, you know, just simple day-to-day uh, examples where any one of these stages could go wrong? Right. Um, yes, for sure. Um, so maybe we'll try to do two things. First, we'll yeah. do that, which is to try to maybe say, when certain problems could occur according to this model. Uh, and some of these are actually quite theoretical to, uh, still, um, uh, you know, that there is still evidence that needs to be collected uh, about that. Um, but then maybe we could also focus on how to improve, uh, which I think is maybe at least not less important then, uh, right? So if we think about it clinically, what we're doing now is some kind of assessment, right? Where, where we try to assess the problem. And our view is, is, is called a transdiagnostic view in the sense that instead of uh, trying to assess people on their symptoms, is this person depressed? Does this person have an anxiety disorder, right? What we try to do is we say, does this, prob- does this person have a problem with identification or is it selection? So we try to identify problems, not in the terms of symptoms, but rather in, time, in terms of processes that might go wrong. So if we start with identification, okay? Uh, you mentioned this, and I think that that's right. I think there, there are certain problems where people um, maybe are not regulating enough, right? Um, so they, I, they don't identify emotions. Uh, Maybe they have problem recognizing their emotions, like in alexithemia or something like that, right? And if you can't really well recognize what you're feeling, it's really hard to know that you need to regulate your emotions, right? So one type of problem that could be accounted by identification might be this this idea of um, what we might call under-regulators, okay? So these are situations where people might not regulate their emotions even though regulating could be beneficial for them. It could be with alexithymia. It could be sometimes with certain types of depression, for example, where there is this kind of learned helplessness and this belief that I I, I couldn't even, I, I could not change my emotions. And then some of those emotions may persist, for example. And maybe if I try to regulate my emotions, maybe then I could... Uh, actually help myself or, and again, I'm not, of course, blaming anyone. It's, it, it is a problem, right? Um, 
the other side of that might be over-regulating, right? Uh, so a lot of times in anxiety uh, disorders, people might try to avoid or disengage even very mild situations that could induce anxiety, right? So certain anxiety issues could be defined or, or could be could have a problem with being over regulators. Right. So this is the case where actually every sign of, of something that could start my panic attack or 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 an anxiety or an anxious episode um, is something that means that I really need to regulate and really need to regulate with the with with the heaviest guns that I have, which are the disengagement ones. So I now need to avoid everything or try to distract myself from everything, and this could be also a problem of 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 the other side here of being over regulators where I am actually regulating in situations where I don't not don't necessarily need to or where it might not be beneficial for me. Um, so I think that for identification, this might be the major things we could look at, like under-regulators, over-regulators could lead to different problems that may have this uh, source of, of problems in identification. Uh, right. right? right. Uh, switching to selection is actually, so this is a space where we've done a lot of work. Um, both like the with main health, focus has been there. Yeah. Um, again, I don't know why. I mean, it's not that it's more important than other stages, but you have to start somewhere. Um, and uh, uh, for selection, what we're talking about is, okay, when there's an episode that I do want to regulate, am I able to tailor my strategy efforts or my, my regulatory strategies in a flexible way? So here there is this um, work that we and others have done. Uh, we have focused on uh, post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress the disorder. Um, and um, there is great work done uh, led by uh, Nomi Fine, as a uh, former graduate student of mine, um, that uh, we have shown in two PTSD populations that they might have this um, regulatory selection flexibility problem. What do I mean by that? Is the same thing that we've discussed before, which is that relative to healthy individuals, that could actually tailor their strategies based on the intensity that they're experiencing so that they can disengage from very high intense emotions and engage with low intensity emotions. Mm -hmm. People with PTSD, we've shown it both in students and also in people with complex PTSD due to um, um, sexual related trauma, uh, that we've shown that this flexibility is cut in half in these individuals, meaning that they're less able to modify their emotions and maybe identify that a certain emotion is high and therefore requires to disengage and other emotions that might be lower that requires engagement. And they actually show this reduced flexibility meaning that they're less able to tailor their strategies based on the intensity that they're facing. Um, so we have found that in, in two populations, we have also shown that it's very important for firefighters, um, that it actually moderates the relationship between exposure and PTSD. 
Um, so we well, show that. More. So we have shown in a in a in a study on firefighters that are routinely exposed to very high traumatic events. Um, we have shown we have shown that this relationship between exposure to trauma, how much you're exposed, and how many symptoms do you develop um, based on on that exposure. We have shown that there is this positive relationship only among those who are less flexible, meaning people who show this lower flexibility that they do not decide to disengage high intensity and engage with low intensity. Right. There is this strong relationship. The more they were exposed to traumatic events, the more they had PTSD symptoms. However, uh, for people who have this high flexibility, those firefighters, there was no such relationship between traumatic ex exposure. So being more exposed did not lead you to show uh, more PTSD symptoms. Um, we've shown it in firefighters and uh, others have shown it now in Vietnam veterans as well. Wow, I think that's a really powerful finding because I think if I, if I think about these kinds of disorders, you know, PTSD, after having experienced the trauma, people are haunted by, you know, these, these panic attacks or waking up in the middle of the night or this in general hypervigilance and, you know, misinterpreting loud sounds as a threat, all sorts of things that come, come with PTSD. And I think that flexibility of being able to throughout our lives, right, we're constantly regulating our emotions, knowing when, you know, waking up in a sweat after an awful attack and just going out for a run, right? And maybe maybe there's a time during the day where you talk to your wife about it, right? Or you talk to a therapist and you really engage those emotions. And other times it's knowing when to disengage those right. that anxiety and right. maybe maybe those loud noises, I need to get away from them and 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 working with yourself, right? Not against yourself. And I think that's that's wonderful to know that, you know, we don't always control the trauma we're exposed to. Obviously, firefighters or, uh, you know, people who are in the military, they, they choose to go into these fields. But, you know, even in those cases and in cases where trauma happens, right, natural yes. disasters happen, wars happen, yes. knowing that we have more control over the outcomes right? And we don't have to fall victim to these disorders. And absolutely not to blame anybody of course. who's suffering, but I think giving them that power back, I think is a breath of fresh air to yeah. know that we can change. Yeah. So uh, again, I'm happy to discuss, I com again, completely agree with that. i um, happy to discuss some of our efforts right now to try to improve that. So uh, uh, we could go into that right now, or if you want, we sure. can. Or we could try, maybe, if you want, still to be systematic, uh, <laughs> to your, or at least for me to be. We can go. We can go through the four steps. That's okay. Well, it's okay. <laughs> I, I mean, whatever, whatever you think is. Uh, I'm not that no, rigid. I, think this I is should be super, flexible. Super relevant. <laughs> what? I know. I think this is super relevant, but we could always bounce back. We we have okay. three and four left. Don't worry. Okay, so so should I talk now about those efforts, or do you want yes, me to? Yes, please. Yes, okay, please. Yeah. Okay. So, so, so yes. Yeah, so, so if we, so if we have shown, and it's, it seems that that maybe PTSD, one of the problems. Again, this is not 
trying to say that it's everything about PTSD, right? Clearly not. But if we have identified a potential target, which is this idea that individuals that suffer from PTSD have this reduced regulatory selection flexibility, um, what you usually do when you want to try to develop uh, at least evidence-based treatments, the second phase would be are you able to push that around? Are you able to improve that flexibility? Because sometimes we identify problems, but it's not clear how to approach them and how to try to modify them. So second stage, a lot of times, uh, which is target engagement, is where you want to try to see, perhaps even in healthy individuals, and this is also important because it's important to improve regulation abilities for resilience and for other things, um, is to see whether we can move that around and, 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 and improve that flexibility and whether improving that flexibility can lead to better well or higher well-being. So we have done that effort right now. This is uh, something that's uh, underway right now um, with healthy individuals. And we had these two groups of individuals that, uh, that did this intervention that we developed. Um, so again, both of them healthy. Um, healthy, even healthy students, um, but and 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 we had two 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 groups. One group was a the two groups were actually quite similar. They both learned how to regulate their emotions, and they were exposed to certain emotional episodes, and they selected between strategies. But one group had this added element we think is highly important, which is we taught them how to be flexible. So that means that we taught them that they need to try that when they are exposed to emotional events, they need to try to identify what is the emotional intensity that's being aroused in them. And then also to be able to tailor their regulatory efforts in accordance with that intensity, right? Um, so both groups did the same thing. Uh, they did this, we have a computerized task where people see emotional words and they are of high or low intensity and they and they could decide how to regulate uh, whether it's with disengagement or engagement uh, so there's that element so there's a psychoeducation element where we teach them about the right. logic but then they do the computerized task both groups and we also develop this like kind of homework uh, element where we try to help people uh, use that logic in their real life. Uh, so they need to to um, search for emotional episodes in their daily lives, and then again categorize them as high or low intensity, and then try to regulate them maybe according to that flexible rule that I've just said. And what we have shown in that study was that um, the flexibility group actually improved in their flexibility. And that was tested in an independent test for stimuli that they have not encountered during the sessions, right? But maybe more importantly, they showed higher well-being um, following the intervention relative to before the intervention. So having that stage completed, what we are doing these days is we are actually um, inviting people with PTSD, or so we're inviting patients to this randomized trial. Um, and it has the same logic. Um, we can try to see whether we could improve in this population as well, their flexibility 
uh, the regulatory selection flexibility and do so by helping them identify better which episodes are of high intensity or low intensity and how to tailor their disengagement and engagement strategies in accordance with that intensity. And we want to see whether we could improve their flexibility, but more importantly, we want to see whether this improvement may actually lead to symptom reduction. Um, Amazing. So this is underway right now, Um, but we hope there is promise there. We hope that it might work. Sounds very promising. I think that giving people back agency, you know, the difference between the, the two conditions of just being told what strategy to use to regulate your emotions versus having this meta kind of perspective on it. And okay, this is the situation, having that emotional awareness of how intense is the emotion, and then being able to choose, I think that really helps people use that muscle of, okay, what's going on right now? And what can I do about it? And it's really giving people their agency back. I love that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So I just want to highlight there that I completely agree with you. And I think that part of the part of what's important here is that you're right, that when you improve emotion regulation, you are boosting agency. Um, I must say that there, it's actually something that we try to control, meaning that in both of our groups, people freely select how they should regulate their emotions. Um, So we want the people to have the same level of agency. Um, uh, So that's important when you want to isolate the flexibility factor. Uh, So our way of trying to tackle that was in both of our groups, people are able to freely select between strategies. And therefore, I think they have pretty high agency in both conditions. But we think that the flexibility elements go beyond the agency. Again, not to say that agency is not important. Agency is critically important. But for us, we want to identify this very, uh, you know, that's this this definite mechanism of emotion regulation right. flexibility. And there, we do so by helping people recognize the intensity and re- and by being able to tailor their disengagement and engagement strategies in accordance with that identification of intensity. So for us, if we show, I mean, that's what we want to show, that if we improve that flexibility, even above and beyond agency, that maybe that leads to uh, symptom reduction. Amazing. Amazing. So we have number three and four, right? In terms of the (laughs) the stages. I promise you you would come back to it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Okay, perfect. So yes, so just a brief reminder, we had identification. We talked about problems there. I need to identify when to regulate my emotions. We had selection, which we've discussed right now. Once I've identified that I, there is a need, how do I select between available strategies? And then we are now at implementation. And this is actually where most studies have been done, right? This is the here and now. So now I'm right. executing a particular strategy. The question there might be, how well do I do it? And even there, there could be flexibility versions, right? So maybe there are certain individuals that are very good at disengaging, but find it really difficult 
to engage with their feelings and try to modify them. So they're inflexible in the sense that they're not able to maybe implement as well certain strategies relative to others, right? Um, I don't know to give. So th there are uh, there are studies, you know, that show that uh, uh, that maybe certain populations have problems to reappraise their emotions for certain anxiety disorders. Uh, sometimes it's really hard to think about something, even if that intensity might be mild and so forth, right? Uh, you could even think about another example where, um, um, uh, for for maybe uh, like autism, for example, right? So a lot of times reappraisal might require perspective taking, right? Right. And sometimes if there part of the problem I have is with perspective taking, maybe it's going to be hard for me to apply certain types of engagement such as reappraisal that involve or that require uh, perspective taking, right? So I've just given two examples of how we might, there are certain populations that might have problems with um, uh, implementation. And moving to the fourth stage, which is monitoring. Um, monitoring requires this, I need to check how certain strategies are faring across time. And people could get stuck and become inflexible during those stages as well. Um, so maybe you're applying a certain strategy for even disengagement, right? That's been very, very useful to achieve that short-term goal. And you feel better. But now maybe you get trapped in it and you continue right. doing it. Even when the situation has changed, the, the emotion has subsided to some extent. So a certain problem could be if you're overgeneralizing this distraction effort within an episode and you're not tailoring the fact that you're already feeling a little bit better and maybe now it's time to switch to engagement, uh, that is also a problem that could occur with uh, monitoring. And, right. and just to say there uh, in this other intervention that we're developing, which is kind of like a CBT intervention, what we're trying to do is really assess problems in each of these four stages and then be able to really help people um, improve certain problems in each of these stages because you can improve we think um, and it's again we're not even touching the symptoms themselves during that uh, intervention right but rather we are trying to see do you have problems recognizing when you need to regulate do you know how to select between strategies in a flexible way do you need some help with implementing certain types of strategies and do you need help with being able to monitor how certain strategies are faring across time. Um, so that's another important part of what our lab is doing these days. That's amazing. I think that, you know, all of this work is giving people this emotional toolkit, you know, and that's, that's something that we've been seeing more and more of these days of speaking about the spectrum of emotions, but what you're doing is breaking open, you know, op like lifting the hood and seeing what goes into emotion regulation, all of these different steps and bringing awareness 
to this whole process of understanding. Because I think a lot of people, you know, who are able to control their emotions, so to speak, are probably unconsciously suppressing or just distracting and getting on with it. And that obviously isn't helpful in every situation as well. So giving people this toolkit of looking into themselves, how am I emotionally, what emotions are coming up? How am I regulating on a day-to-day basis? Is it serving me or is it not? And which situations call for which strategies? And even knowing that there are different strategies open to us, right? Some people, their own only strategy is going to be suppression. Other people are more fluent. You know, they know when to talk to a friend. They know when to go for a run. They know when to put on some Netflix or whatever it is. But but have more of that awareness. And I think bringing this out and showing, you know, the incredible complexity, but really giving people the power back to control their emotions in a way that allows them to live very rich emotional lives is so important. And I love this work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. I I mean... Yeah, I think that uh, a lot of people talk about the scientist-practitioner model in clinical psychology. And I think that there's a lot into it. And uh, and you're right. Um, our lab has done a lot of basic science work, understanding which strategies work, how, what are the underlying mechanisms. But it's really important to be able to try to translate these ideas and and, and be hopefully able to better help individuals by taking those findings from our basic science research and try to develop these interventions that are based on these or based on this evidence and, and try to make sense and try to look at, as you said, under the hood in order to be able to help individuals, which is, again, I think what we what all want to do. We're all about. <laughs> exactly. Absolutely. Brilliant. God, thank you so much. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. For me too.